The following audio is from the King's Chapel. You can find out more about our church at thekingschapel.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again. If you can believe it, we are in the second to last chapter of Acts this morning. So I know it's been a bit of a journey, and it has been, especially for the Apostle Paul over the last few weeks. But if you'd like to uh, turn in your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 27. There's also sermon outlines at the doors if you didn't get a chance to pick one up where you can follow along and take some notes. But what you'll notice from that sermon handout is that there is a wall of text on there and not a lot of room for notes. Uh, so you'll have to scribble in the margins because we are, are tackling a big chapter this morning. And it's, it's an important chapter, and I think it's an exciting chapter in a lot of ways, especially for a certain contingent of our church. But this morning, before we get into the text, uh, on November 11th, which was Thursday, we as a nation celebrated Veterans Day, and our church is full of men and women who have served our nation uh, in the armed forces, and this week is supposed to be a chance to honor them, so if you could, before you applaud, I know you all want to, but if there's anyone here who is a veteran, would you stand? Would you stand, please, so we can honor you? Any veterans here this morning? And there's going to be a bunch more in the, in the next service. And actually, if you could just for a moment, stay standing. And can I pray for you? If you wouldn't mind staying on your feet. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these men and, and women who have served our nation and, and served their brothers and sisters here in this, this land uh, by giving of, of their time, their lives, uh, in order to, to lovely, lovingly sacrifice for us to serve us. Lord, we pray you bless their lives. We think this morning of all the, uh, the veterans around our country and around the world who, uh, Lord, have entered into this difficult and high calling and are, are in some cases reaping the, the pain and the fallout of, of some of their experiences. We pray that you would draw near to those armed uh, forces veterans, especially those that know you, to strengthen and encourage them, to help them through seasons of doubt um, and mental illness, Lord, of distance from you, Lord, and I pray that we as a church would be a light, uh, a place where, where those who are, are struggling can find a home, where those who have served can be honored, and Lord, we pray your blessing upon those who have, have served our nation. In Jesus' name, amen. We're so grateful, so grateful this morning, and, and I wonder if any of you are Navy uh, veterans in particular, uh, would you mind sticking your hand in the air if you're a Navy veteran, if there's any in the room? Yeah, okay, we got one at the back, we got uh, a two, okay, we've got a couple around the room. This really is, is your week if you are a Navy person. Today is your day because of the passage that we come to. You're going to be the expert. So even for you that are not really Navy, but if you consider yourself a boater or a sailor or a fisherman or, or a pirate or any of those categories, this is your day. This is the passage for you. Uh, so after I preach a message, often there are people that come up to me afterward, our resident theologians and biblical scholars who might have a correction, an addendum, an enhancement, a thought in regards to the message, but not today. Today, the theologians don't know anything about this stuff. It is the sailors that will know, and they will correct my land lubberishness uh, this morning. And um, by the way, do any of you know what a pirate's favorite letter is? No. It is the C. <laughs> uh, I'm a father now, so I get to do that, and I enjoy every single time I get to. And um, I don't know what it is, but... For many of us, there is something about the water, there's something about the sea that it just is, is uh, powerful. It speaks to us. Some of you are mountain people, some like forests. I love all that stuff. But there's something about being on the water 
that is, is transformative. It gives us almost like a picture of, of God's creativity, His power. Any of you like that? You're water people where you're by the water. You, you sense it. You feel the presence and the power and the beauty of God. And, and there's something so, uh, so amazing about the, the ocean, the sea. We look out on it and we see the constancy of it. We also see the ever-changing nature of it and, and, and the beauty of it. And it reveals something about God to us. But there's also something fearful about the water isn't there when we consider the ocean and its depth and its darkness, the, the parts of it we don't even know or understand, its power and, and the strength of an angry ocean. When we consider that, it can cause us to realize if you're ever caught on rough water, how little control you actually have and how small we really are. And some of you have been in that situation where, where you're on rough water and you realize, really, you can't do anything to stop it. The ocean, the sea is powerful and we are ultimately powerless. And, and so if you find yourself in that situation as the ocean begins to toss and rage, you quickly realize that your life is not in your own hands. And Paul is going to find himself in this situation this week. And he's found himself here uh, quite a bit, actually, but he's going to be facing the consequences of other people's bad decisions that get him in a spot of, of danger. He's going to face seasickness, uh, storms, near starvation, and eventually a shipwreck. And yet what we see in him is that he never loses hope. He never despairs. We don't know if he never does, but he has this constant return to hope and strength in the Lord. And we're going to see this morning how not only does he have hope, but he strengthens others around him as they are going through a storm and a shipwreck and disaster. Listen to how John Pollock describes the scene that will come to in Acts 27. He says, day after miserable day, night after terrifying night, they rose and fell in mountainous seas. Thick, unbroken clouds prevented any reckoning. The, sh the captain had no idea of the ship's position. The main cargo of wheat had become thoroughly waterlogged. The sacks too heavy and sodden to move in a pitching ship. And all the time increasing in weight, the water level rose. The ship settled lower until by the 11th or 12th day of the storm, Scripture says, all hope of our being saved was abandoned. Foundering was inevitable now. A matter of a few days at most, even if the storm had abated and would mean the loss of all hands if they abandoned ship. In this description, we see the terror of, of first century sailors and passengers as, as they are caught in a desperate storm, attempting to sail to Rome across violent seas, uh, struggling, desperate, losing hope, all except one one, the Apostle Paul. And as we walk through this, this long and detailed passage, I put some, some notes on your, your sheet for some of the seafaring terms that maybe I didn't know ahead of time so that you can also know them and keep up with what's going on here. But we're going to see, and what I don't want you to miss this week, is the strength of Paul in the midst of shipwrecks and storms, the strength of Paul and what he leans on in order to survive, but not just for himself, for others, to strengthen them to equip them, to give them courage, and to give them strength to survive a shipwreck. Over the last few weeks, we've, we've walked through Paul being threatened in all kinds of ways. And what we've said is God can use even the worst of things, darkness, and still bring about his good purposes. He can work in these difficult things, these dark things, and still bring about his purposes for his glory. And that's a really good thing. We've seen how Paul can be strengthened and has been strengthened through difficulty. And how we, when we're challenged and, and, and put through difficult times, we can be strengthened to bear more fruit and to have more productive lives for the sake of the kingdom. And, and what we'll 
And what we've also seen is that as we share our faith, as we're faithful with little things, God gives us more. And Paul has had the opportunity, as he's been bold in sharing his faith, to share before governors and kings and you name it. He has had more and more higher and higher audiences to share his faith. And all those lessons will continue to be true in this passage. But today, what I want you to see is how Paul, in the midst of a shipwreck, in the midst of a storm, is able to stand with courage and with strength, and more importantly, how he is able to strengthen others in the midst of their shipwreck. Now, uh, when you saw the sermon title, How to Survive a Shipwreck This Morning, you maybe thought to yourself, I'm never going to go through that, Mark. I don't need your practical tips on how to survive at sea. Uh, And I want us to think of this more figuratively this morning, obviously. And I wondered this morning, right now, if the Lord would bring to your mind someone who is struggling, someone in your life who is uh, at a loss, being tossed by storms, having difficulty in life. Who has the Lord brought into your path to love, to support, to strengthen as they are walking through a shipwreck? Let's go to the beginning of the chapter, and we'll see how we got here. In the final chapters of Acts, uh, Paul has been going after tri- uh, through trial after trial, years of imprisonment, um, and, and basically, this has been for nothing, nothing more than being a Christian. Paul has just been representing Jesus, and he hasn't done anything criminal, and yet he's been in prison for years. He's gone through all kinds of beatdowns, threats, and, and now after a lengthy legal appeal to go to Rome to be before Caesar, we see where Paul is setting sail in Acts chapter 27, verse 1. It says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to, to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Okay, so one note in here, if you want to figure out how to to say difficult words in Scripture, just pronounce it with confidence and and move on, and it's probably right, okay? But there's actually a lot of detail packed into this passage. What we see here is that Festus, the governor of of the region of Judea, has sent Paul out with Julius, a centurion. So a centurion's a commander of 100, uh, but in this case, this particular centurion, Julius, his responsibility would be uh, basically courier duty for the Roman Empire. So he would be carrying messages across, across great distances, or in this case, he's been commissioned to do prisoner transport. So Julius, with a, a group of about 12 soldiers, would be responsible for taking Paul across the Roman Empire from Judea all the way back to Rome. And so Julius would be an experienced military veteran. He would be someone who is, is familiar with being on the seas. And him and his group of 12, if they stepped on someone else's ship, they would basically commandeer control. He would be in charge, even if there was a captain and an owner of the ship, just by nature of being a, a Roman officer. And so it is now his job to take Paul all the way across the Mediterranean. And so this is Uh, going to be interesting, the way maybe you see in him that Julius is affected by Paul. By being in his presence, Julius grows in in kindness and trust of Paul for some reason because of of the constancy and the faith that he'll see in Paul. But they've got a long way to go, and this is not a direct flight. So if you could put up a map real quick for just a second. This is a kind of a bizarre map, and I know it's tiny. I'm, I'm very sorry about that, but they go a long way. Basically, what they're going to do is they're going to work their way up the coast of the Mediterranean. Easy sailing. It sounds nice. We all want to go on Mediterranean cruises, don't we? And, and, and so we think, that sounds nice. It's, it's not going to be too bad. But just like our flights today where we take a puddle hopper jumper to, from one 
close city to another and then get on the big jumbo jet. That's the same way that sailing would have worked then. So they'll sail up the Mediterranean coast. They'll take a look at the wind and the weather. They'll try to catch a bigger ship, the jumbo jet kind of style, to get over across to Italy, but it's quite a way to go, especially as the year is getting long. It's late August at this point, and they need to make it all the way to Rome by basically uh, the end of October. Otherwise, the weather turns pretty harshly in uh, November. And so if you're from kind of the Northeast, if you look at a latitude line of where uh, most of Europe is and most of the Mediterranean is, it's really like Pennsylvania or, or Ohio in terms of where it is on, on Earth. So if you're from those places, you know that once fall rolls in, it just gets gray constantly, right? If you're from Pennsylvania, it's sunny in the summer, and then it's gray, fall, winter, spring. And the problem with that is that when you're sailing and you don't have any instruments and you're in one of these old wooden vessels with just a sail and no maps really except for rudimentary charts, you kind of need the stars and the sun, don't you? And so there's a time of year around mid-November where you cannot sail anymore and you shut it down for the whole winter. They're trying to make it, but again, they have a long way to go. On board their boat, as they're heading up the coast toward Turkey to catch the westbound, Paul would not be the only prisoner on board. There would be certainly criminals of all kinds below decks, but Paul would have uh, a different kind of status. Some of these criminals would be going to the Colosseum in Rome to face wild animals or to perhaps be um, uh, gladiators in the arena. But Paul had a different status as this Roman citizen in this appeals process. And so he's not below decks. He's up on Uh, He can go out on the decks. He can wander about. He just wears a chain symbolically uh, where he can walk around freely, but they know he's still a prisoner. We'll see, even when they put into port, Paul's allowed to go onto shore and see friends and come back. Not only that, but Paul gets to bring along with him two bondservants or two slaves according to their law. And so we see Aristarchus from Thessalonica, and the one who keeps saying we in this account is who? Do you guys know who it is? Luke, yeah, right. The physician Luke also goes along with them. And so to go on board with Paul on this prisoner transport, this is kind of amazing. Luke and Aristarchus essentially have to sign themselves on to be Paul's slaves. And I know it's, it's somewhat of a formality, but think about this. These guys are so committed to the mission of staying with Paul in this journey to Rome that they have made themselves slaves, at least on paper, and gone aboard a prison transport with him. Pretty amazing love. Pretty amazing support that, that these two have given to Paul. And so they get on board the ship, and we know that Paul's already been on a bunch of overseas missionary journeys. He's, he's an experienced sailor in some ways. He's been on the water a lot, but now Luke is on board with him. And so in classic Luke style, we're going to get a lot more detail this time around uh, on their journey with specific nautical terminology and then about all that's going to transpire. And we love this about Luke. Luke is accurate. Luke is detailed. Luke gives us a uh, confidence in the scriptures. Because as we read the stuff that he says, you can actually go back and verify it. And so in the 1860s, there was a a scholar named James Smith, which there's a James Smith here this morning, isn't there? So a pretty common name, but a a scholar in the 1860s named James Smith, a Scottish um, scholar and sailor, took his ship out and, and basically went along the same course at the same time of year. And what he found was that Luke's account was completely accurate in terms of all his notations on wind direction, sea depth, the types of storms that come up, the, the coastal descriptions, all of it. And he was sailing in the same kind of vessel, essentially, that they would have been sailing in at the time. It's pretty remarkable. It's remarkable. So we trust Luke's account here. And so the plan is that in August of AD 59, with the winds blowing gently westward, good time of year, that they're going to sail up the coast, where the passengers will unload, Julius will go like Obi-Wan Kenobi and commission the Millennium Falcon. I'm trying to change the, the picture so some of you can keep up. And, um, 
they are going to get that bigger ship, and if all goes according to plan, reach Rome by late October. So from Caesarea on the coast, they sail 65 miles north, if you could fire up the map again, and they stop briefly in Sidon, where we begin to see the kindness of Julius. He lets Paul go ashore. He lets Paul visit with friends. Shortly after, they continue sailing north and then west, past Cyprus, and verse 4, putting out to sea. From there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. So at this time of year, the southern end of Cyprus, that would have been the fast way to go, but the winds are, are basically blowing north into Cyprus. And so the leeward side of the island, think of it this way, windward would be the direction the what is blowing? The wind. Okay, yeah. So, so on the south end of Cyprus, the wind would be blowing directly at Cyprus with the risk of storms coming and, and basically driving their ship into the rocky coast. So what they do is to get cover from the storms that that type of wind would generate is they sail around on the north. It's not fast sailing. It's going to take them a long time, but they're going to be basically use the island as a wall to block the storms from coming through. So they sail on, on the leeward side, 65 miles around Cyprus. Uh, so at this time of year, they're using this, this area as basically a wall, and the captain chooses to go this direction. It says, verse 5, When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. Myra is the future home of Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. Okay. Then there, St. Nicholas is a real person, just so you all know. Don't tell your kids St. Nicholas didn't exist. Verse 6, There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, that's an Egyptian ship, sailing for Italy, and put us on board. So far, so good. Julius has found them, the big boat, a large Egyptian merchant ship. It's going to be carrying dried fruit and grain on its way from the granaries of Egypt to Italy, to Rome for trade. And this ship is, again, not a, passenger, or not a um, prisoner of transport. It says later in the passage there are 276 passengers on board, 276 souls. So picture this, nearly 300 people from all over the world. There may have even been uh, women and children on this ship, Egyptians, Greeks, Jews, Romans, merchants, pilgrims, slaves, thrill-seekers, uh, prisoners, soldiers, all on one big wooden boat with a single mast and sail. No compasses, no globes, no nothing, just a small crew and a long way to go. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not, did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon, casting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. This has been a long, tough journey. If you look in the, in the text, they were trying to make it by the Day of Atonement on October 5th, and they don't make it. It's taken them far too long. The day has come and gone, and just as the day's here, you can look at the weather now, and you see they, they're getting shorter and shorter. The weather is getting colder and colder, and it's not fun. It's not pumpkin spice lattes. It's, it's, it's rough seas. It's what they have to look forward to. Seas are becoming more dangerous, and, and storms are beginning to, to develop in the Mediterranean. And so they want to find some place to winter safely. So they stop in, in Fair Havens. Fair Haven, Fair Haven sounds like a nice place, doesn't it? It's not. It's really not. They stop in this place called Fair Havens, and it's an exposed harbor where during the winter, wind and storms would blow right into the harbor. So if you had a big ship and you wanted to park it and anchor in the midst of a, of a harbor, you would want to be protected from the elements and the weather. And, and this Fair Havens is not going to do it. But they're running out of time. So they have one chance. They've got to shoot around farther to go to the port at Phoenix, or they're going to spend the whole winter in this terrible little port and potentially lose their whole ship. 
That's what the owner and the pilot are thinking. So, so they're worried about it. They want to make a call and go for it. They can either wait it out or try to push up the coast. And Paul says this. He says, sirs, verse 10, I believe that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. He's been there, done that. He doesn't think it's a good idea. It says, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend winter in, the majority, they kind of put it to a vote, decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Paul is not an amateur on the seas. We're like, what is this preacher doing chiming in? First Corinthians, one of his earliest letters, tells us that he has been through already three shipwrecks. This is going to make number four. And so he's seen things that, that maybe no one else has seen, and he's saying to them, we cannot do this. We are not going to make it, I know. And here's what happens. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, Luke is being snarky here. He's saying they, they think it's a good time to go. They weighed anchor, and they sailed along Crete close to the sh- shore. But here it comes, verse 14. Soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. The weather's turned quickly for Paul and their ship. It goes from bad to worse. They, they leave the shelter of Kata and, and they find themselves in brutally tough seas. And so picture it. Just put yourselves there. The ship is creaking It feels like it's going to break apart. The weather is getting more and more rough. And so what they do is they begin to lash ropes and cables under the ship and basically try to tie the ship together. When I grew up, we had, we had these old hand-me-down soccer cleats. And what we would do is we would wrap the laces around underneath to basically hold the soles of the shoes on, okay? This is, this is what we were dealing with in the Jeske household. And this is what they were dealing with for their ship. They're trying to tie it together so that it doesn't break apart in the weather. But things are going from bad to worse. I want you to picture this with me. It says, we were violently storm-tossed and began to jettison a cargo. They're being driven towards dangerous rocky coast. They take down the sail and just basically want to let go. And they're bobbing around like a cork in the middle of the sea. This is how John Pollock again describes the scene. It says, hours after hour, after hour bobbing about like a cork with a spray of rain preventing fires, drenching supplies, clothes, everything, above and below decks. The heaving, slippery boards made any movement painful. Paul, Luke, the convicts now released from their irons, and every able-bodied man would take turns at the pumps, but with the seeping of water through strained timbers, the level in the bilge, that's the pump to get water out of the ship, continued to rise, and the ship settled lower. On the second day, to lighten her, the captain ordered loose cargo, jettisoned all livestock and much else. On the third, he ordered overboard the spare tackle, cables. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest, that means a big storm, lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is it. The cargo gone. The, the crew and the passengers completely exhausted, giving up hope. They have done everything they can do. Everything. Everything they can think of, but the storm just keeps winning. The storm keeps coming. It will not relent. If you can put yourselves there, imagine how awful this must have been. Day after day, I went camping this weekend, and I mean, (laughs) camping is tough. And think about the conditions that they're in right here. The storm will not relent, and they have this moment of despair where they all realize that they are going to die. They're going to die on the water. 
It's just a matter of time. You have no idea where they are. And if you saw the map earlier, that up and down squiggly line going on, they're just cast about in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And so in this, I want you to see how Paul responds. How Paul, in the midst of this hopelessness and despair, as they're lamenting their death on the water, even Luke, honestly, Luke is super brave. He's been on so many of these journeys, and he says that he has abandoned all hope. Nothing left. And I want you to see how Paul responds. And I want you to wonder this morning, how can I respond, and how can I strengthen and help others who are struggling in storms right now? What can I do to help my brothers and sisters who who are struggling? How can I bear the burdens of one another and so fulfill the law of Christ? I want to point out three anchors, three anchors that Paul points to that we can cling to when life is out of control. The first is, and this was prayed by by Colonel Brian Roberts uh, in our prayer time, the presence of God. The first anchor is the presence of God. Verse 21, it says, Since they have been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you have listened to me. You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Paul can't help himself. He starts with, I told you. I told you. And then he goes on, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. Take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Paul says, take heart. Take heart. Why? Why? Because God is with them. God is with them. As Christians, we know God is with us. We're indwelt by his Holy Spirit. He says that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is near to us. But, but can we be honest? There are times when we feel like, God, where are you? God, you've promised to never leave me or forsake me, but it's been 14 days of storm and we are starving and we are going to die. God, where are you? Some of you feel like that right now. As Christians, we also know that there are times where though God is always with us, where somehow he, he manifests his presence to us where his spirit is so present to us in a way that we cannot deny and we can sense that he is near, that he is with us even as things feel like hell. He is with us and he is beside us. Psalm 139, I love Psalm 139. It reminds us of this. David is talking about how good God is and how present he is when things are good and when they're not good. He says, there's nowhere where I can flee from his presence or from his spirit. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, If I set up camp at death, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He says there's nowhere that I can go that you are not. You are with me at all times, in all places. And here the angel of the Lord appears to Paul and he he strengthens Paul, he equips Paul, Paul, and he assures Paul that he has promised not to let them go. And and I can tell you that when you go through danger and terror alone, it is terribly difficult. But Paul here, full of faith, reminds the hopeless that God is near, that God is, is not far off, that he has promised to sustain them, to help them, and to get them through. He reminds 
the terrified passengers and sailors of God's presence. And I can picture this, can't you? In the midst of the storm, for somehow Paul gets all of their attention and he tells them what he has just experienced through this angel and he assures them of God's presence and that they will survive. And, and I can just see hardened sailors, the spray of the water mixing in with tears as for the first time in days, they have a glimmer of hope that God is near that he can help them. I can see men no longer concerned with hiding their emotions as Paul speaks truth and light and life into their darkest despair. Friends, some of you really need to hear this this morning. Maybe some of you online need to hear this this morning. God is near to you. God has not forgotten you. God will fulfill his promise to never leave you and forsake you, and he is fulfilling it even now. There is nowhere that you can go from his presence. Nowhere where you can go from his spirit, and even now he holds you in his hand. And Lord, I want to pray just right now that you would give an awareness of your spirit to exactly those that need it right now. That, Lord, you would manifest your presence in the lives of of those believers who feel like they're alone, and that you would reveal yourself in Jesus' name. Despite losing all hope, Paul throws them an anchor, and it is the anchor of God's presence. Does the storm stop? Does it? No. No. No, but the Lord will see them through. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. Sailors know how to do this. I guess they can hear the the waves breaking on rocks somewhere in the distance, and they know it sounds like land, even in the darkness. It sounds like they're getting close and that land is not far off. So what they do is they throw weighted ropes off the front of the ship, off the bow to measure the depth. And so they put in the first rope, and what they find is that it's 20 fathoms deep. 20 fathoms is how much, you all know? 120 feet. It's on your notes. Okay. So about six feet per fathom, 20 fathoms deep. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, 90 feet. Land is close. They're getting closer and closer to land. But it's nighttime. There are rocks everywhere. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, They let down four anchors from the stern, from the back of the boat, and prayed for day to come. So they're close to land. What they do is they dig in their heels and they pray. They say, morning, we can find a place to crash land this, but not right now. And so they hang in and they wait for morning to come. They throw anchors off the back of the ship and they wait. Verse 30, and as the sailors were seeking to escape the ship, this is not cool, uh, had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors for the boat, uh, from the bow. So a couple of guys have gone to the back and they're like, we're going to put out a few more anchors, and they start lowering a boat, and they're going to take off. Paul sees this. He says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. The centurion sees what's going on. Julius orders that the ropes be cut. That boat floats away. And it's essentially this. It's if any of us are going to die, we're all going to die. And if any of us will live, we are all going to live. Pretty somber moment here in the darkness. And here I want you to see Paul as he offers his second spiritual anchor, the anchor of practical encouragement. Practical encouragement. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. 
Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. This is a crazy scene, isn't it? In the darkness, the storm is still raging. It has not stopped, but in the midst of it, everyone suddenly becomes silent as Paul stands before them, looks to heaven, and begins praying out loud with gratitude. Gratitude is so powerful. Gratitude is something that will will give us hope. But he prays with gratitude, and then he takes bread, and he breaks it apart, and he begins to eat. And he invites others to do the same. And in a moment, 276 passengers go from worrying, from dreading their, their death, to stopping. They stop fighting the storm. They sit in peace, they eat a meal, and they are strengthened. Do you know that one of the best Uh, most loving things that you can do to strengthen and stand with your close friends during a shipwreck is not to say the right things. And in fact, sometimes saying the right things can be kind of empty and feel kind of annoying, honestly. One of the best things that you can do to love others and to help them and to strengthen them as they're going through a storm is to just love them practically. That may mean asking them to, to go on a walk with you or to just stop and have a meal in the midst of their turmoil. And, and to just find a way to love them practically. The Lord, I believe, will bring to mind someone for each one of you this morning who maybe you just need to send that text to or, or dial that number and call them and meet up with them and encourage practically those who are struggling. Paul is continually encouraging and confident in the Lord and he draws others into that confidence, not by preaching at them, but through practical love and service. And and through a gesture as simple as this, he prays out loud in their presence. You can do that too. He, He invites them, the beleaguered crew and passengers to stop and just take care of themselves for just a moment to eat a meal. I love that about our church. When people are struggling in this church, when your brothers and sisters are struggling and we know about it, uh, there's a pretty good chance that a meal will show up at your door. Or maybe in this era, DoorDash credit show up in your account. I don't know. But one of the best things that we can do to, to love each other and to help each other when one is in crisis is to just be like Paul, offer practical encouragement. Stop and eat. Stop and eat. Be strengthened. Lastly, Paul offers one more anchor. The anchor of persistent hope. Persistent Hope. God told Paul that he would see them through. So though to many sailors and everyone on board, a crash landing doesn't seem like the right way to go, especially to those that can't even swim. Everyone on board, though, because of his persistent hope, begins to face that shore, not with dread, but with an assurance, without fear or hesitation, that that if they're going to crash this ship, God has told his servant Paul that none of them will die. And so as they face that island and the morning sun begins to peek through, there's this anticipation, this attitude of, let's roll. Let's do this. God will be faithful. Now, when it was day, verse 39, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. Anchors away, sail up, aim for the beach, we're going in for a landing. But Striking a reef, verse 41, they ran the vessel aground. They're not quite there. They got caught on a sandbar. And it says, the bow stuck and remained immovable and the storm, uh, the stern was being broken up by the surf. It's getting pounded by waves. Their ship is becoming splinters as they're standing on it. They don't know what to do. 
And here, in the midst of this, the guards are about to jump overboard, but they know they can't let their prisoners run free under their watch. So they pull out swords, and they're about ready to slaughter the prisoners, including Paul, when Julius, seeing the strength that Paul has given each of them, seeing his courage, seeing his witness for now weeks, intervenes. And he says, put your swords down. If you can swim, get in the water right now and start swimming swimming for shore. If you can't, pick up a board, get in the water, and we are going to the shore. And it says, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. There's no uh, girl floating on a giant door not making room for her friends, right? They make it. They make it to the shore. And I don't know what they felt, but you can just imagine a little bit of the relief as they're swimming desperately, exhausted, when their toes begin to touch sand. And then, and then their hands and their knees as they crawl out of the water and they lay exhausted on the shore and they look around with wonder that there are 276 souls alive beside them. And they must just marvel that the God that Paul worships has been faithful, that his persistent hope was not in, in something that does not exist, but that it, it is in the true God of the universe, they make it. And we can wonder why. Why did they have to go through this? Was it to strengthen them? Was it because Satan was after them? You know, all of those things, probably true. But we actually don't get to know sometimes why we're going through storms and shipwrecks. We don't get to know this side of eternity. The question that scripture often gives us is not why, but how will you respond? How will you respond and how will you strengthen others when the storms come? I want you to consider how this experience with Paul must have impacted Julius, Luke, Aristarchus, all the others on board as they saw Paul, as they were beyond hope, saw Paul anchored and unwavering. And the question I want to end with this morning is this, how can we strengthen our struggling brothers and sisters to stand firm right now and to survive a shipwreck. I wonder this morning, do you know someone whose life could be described as a shipwreck? Do you know anyone who is struggling? Who's failing? Who's suffering? Maybe that's you. And and as I've considered our church this morning and, and this message, my heart's been heavy because I know that as good as you all look right now, you look great. And as good as we all look on our social media accounts, I know that right now the water is full of splinters and debris from shipwrecks in our church. I know that there are marriages that are struggling. I know that there are addictions that are are spiraling, uh, destructive choices, rejection of, of the Lord, confusion, pain, all kinds of things going on, shipwrecks. And yet in the midst of that, God is present. He is present with you. We can continue to strengthen each other by loving and serving one another practically, and we can rest in the hope of God's promises. The, the, the call of this passage is to believers like us to be like the Apostle Paul, and to be firmly anchored in truth so that we can be constant in prayer. And when life's uncertainty comes, and it will, that we'll be ready to stand faithfully and hold others firmly to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we know we can't do this in our own strength. Some of us are, are charged up right now to, to call a friend and to love them. Lord, I know that some, we are all way too weak to deal with some of the, the brokenness around us, but I pray that you would give us wisdom to know where we can step in lovingly. I pray you would give us strength in your spirit to do more than we can do. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a loving concern for those around us. Let us be anchored in truth so that we can share those anchors with others who are cast about at sea right now. Lord, we love you and we pray for this, your church, in Jesus' name, amen.